you have a smartphone, uh, you can download an app in the App Store called Bulletin Plus and have access to our bulletin. Um, or you can just visit our website. You can view the most recent one. You can sign up to get it by email. Um, I do want to take a look at it this morning. And just highlight a few things. Um, first off, I wanted to let you know that if you weren't able to make it to the all-church retreat last weekend, or if you missed a session, all the sessions were recorded and are available online um, on our sermons page for you to listen to. And if you couldn't make it, it was, it was a really sweet time. And one of the things that made it really unique was that Nick and James, who generally just teach whatever's the assigned passage of the Sunday, got a chance just to teach what God had been teaching them, speak from their heart, um, and it was really encouraging, and so I'd, I'd encourage you to, to take a chance to listen to those um, online. I also wanted to let you know that there is a class that begins today. It's a free class. It starts at 1 p.m. right here in the sanctuary. It's called The History of Redemption, and it's going to be a walk through the big story of the Bible. Um, the Bible is full of small, lowercase s stories, of course, David and Goliath and the like, but is there uh, a big story that God is telling, and, and the class will answer um, with a tremendously l loud yes as we look at the big story of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And we'll move all the way from Genesis to Revelation in six weeks. Um, it is one of my favorite classes to teach. I've taught it in all sorts of formats. And one of the reasons I do is because I took a class just like this, and it completely recalibrated the way I understood the scriptures and Christianity as a whole. So if you can join us for that, that's 1 o'clock today. I would encourage you to do so. Um, this Thursday, we'll have a night of worship and prayer at the house next door at 7 p.m. Um, I also wanted to let you know uh, that there is a women's book club, groups of three or four women that have been meeting together once a week to um, talk with one another, pray with one another, and they've been working through books. They've just finished kind of their first go of this, and so they're in a place where they're adding on both women and changing to a new book. Um, if you'd be interested, it's going to start in July. Um, they meet every other week, and they run for four months. Um, and so if you're, if you're interested... Um, you can speak to Cindy Chon. Um, her email address is just cindychone at gmail.com. If you look at the bulletin, you can check that out um, directly. Uh, and then lastly, <coughs> I wanted to, to bring up Matt. Um, Matt Abad uh, takes care of our bulletin. Is he still here? I don't see any movement. Oh, good. Uh, he takes care of our bulletin. And so first, I wanted to just introduce him and say that if you guys have something going on, whether it's a way that... Um, uh, a way that the church can come alongside you in something you're doing or uh, something you're doing that's more hangout oriented, you're going hiking, you want to invite the church, you can pass all that information through Matt and it'll get into the bulletin, onto our Facebook page, all of that. Um, but specifically, um, he's, he started doing something with his family uh, that's new and he wanted to let you know about it so that you could get involved as well. Go ahead. You can do it wherever you're comfortable, man. Um, so, yeah, God has kind of really put it on my wife's and my heart to maybe someday be able to foster, um, but it's such a huge commitment, and it's really, really difficult to get into that. So 
we found out that the Department of Child and Family Services of Seattle has kind of like a super low commitment version of that. It's called Office Moms and Dads. And what it is is when a child gets removed from their home or uh, a police officer finds an unaccompanied minor walking the streets, whether they're homeless or lost, they get brought to the department's office uh, on Martin Luther King over in Othello area. And they're essentially just left there until a social worker can make sense of their case. So they started this office moms and dads program where on call, they send out blast texts to everybody who's involved with the volunteer program. And they say, hey, we're gonna have two kids here tomorrow from this time to this time. Can any of you just babysit, just hang out with them? You go to the office, they have toys, they have movies, and it's really, really low commitment. We're talking like one or two hours a month if you want, or three hours a week if you want. It's, it's whatever's available to you. But the issue is, is right now they have very, very few volunteers. So whenever something comes up that the volunteers can't make, the children do just end up sitting in the office. Uh, so it would be really awesome if Calvary the Hill or just the church in general can uh, lend assistance to that and bring more volunteers. If that's not something you're interested in doing, um, their room is super boring. Uh, they have VHSs that range from riveting hits like Babe to Land Before Time 3, not even the first one. So if you can donate DVDs, that would be age appropriate. They've also recently had their gaming system stolen. And I know you, you, don't, you don't really want uh, displaced youths playing video games for a long time, but it keeps the children in the office. Teenagers who have abuse in their history, they can't be cornered and forced to stay there. So a lot of times the teenagers will come and leave unless they have something that's interesting for them to do. Their walls are also blank white, and I know that there's a lot of awesome artists here. So if somebody would be interested in maybe doing a piece for them, we couldn't do it directly on the wall, but we could do like plywood and then put it up or canvas or something. Um, it would just be really awesome if the church can revolutionize this area where our city is in need, and especially children. So if you have any questions, please reach out to me. There's so much more information, but uh, that's it for now. Great. Um, yeah, so you can, you can talk to Matt, and once again, through the bulletin, you can reach out to him as well. Um, I'm going to just throw something out there this morning that I'm not really expecting us to do anything on, but it's, it's still under my skin. So, so here's the scoop. Uh, for years and years, Cal Anderson Park has hosted a 4th of July picnic. Uh, it's a relatively big event, and this year it has just fallen through the cracks. Uh, it, to the degree that whereas they spent 15 grand on it last year, they have a budget set, set aside this year of 1500 and they have no organizer. Uh, and so they had a, an emergency community meeting last week and less than a dozen people attended. And one of them was the past organizer and he looked around and said, nope, I'm not gonna do this. Uh, so this is about as close to a suicide mission as it gets, right? Uh, currently, there's no community support, uh, there's very little in terms of budget, and we're talking about the 4th of July, so it's less than a month away. And I see these things, and I'm antsy just to go, we can do it, and I don't want to do that. Uh, I, I don't want to do that, but eventually, I want to be the church that can come alongside and be a part of the community, especially when things fall through the cracks. And so, even if I'm just telling you this today, to put that on the radar of a place where I'd like to get to, when... Um, when effectively there's more of us and we're really stable, uh, stable and satisfied. However, 
if you hear that and it sounds like something that you could really bring to the table and you'd like to volunteer, what I can offer you is, is us as a church's full support as well as we've developed a pretty good network of relationships with other churches here on Capitol Hill. Um, and so, so I just want to throw it out there. No commitment. We'll make sure this is trimmed from the recording. Nobody will ever know that we even considered such a thing. Um, but, but I did want to set it out there. So, um, all right. We're going to go ahead and get into our study this morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That is amazing. Um, we are in a series that we've called Judging the Church. And I know it's a little bit grabby in its title. That's intentional. But what it's really about, what this part of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth about is how is the church to respond to sin inside the church? And so we've already seen um, that, that sin, specifically uh, unrepentant, I'm going to continue to be a Christian, I'm going to continue to be a part of the church, but I'm going to have this sin on the side, that that has to be dealt with. Paul then went on to clarify that there's a major difference, a major distinction, even a double standard of how we deal with sin in the church versus outside the church. And now, if you will, this morning he's going to deal with the wrong way to deal with sin in the church. Um, We'll read the passage in just a second, but here's what's going on. The church in Corinth has become relatively litigious. They've started to sue one another and take one another to court uh, whenever they have any form of dispute. Now, what we need to understand before we even go in is this is probably not that unusual. Um, If we... Uh, We're to look back at chapter 5, verse 1. Paul talks about an issue going on in the church uh, where a man has his own stepmother, and he says that that's even beyond what's acceptable in culture. But here in chapter 6, this is a place where Corinthians become Christians and they're still behaving just like everybody else. Um, Like America today, Corinth and nearby Athens were places of major, uh, major court cases. Uh, They were not just a normal part of life, but they became a common form of entertainment. A good deal of our legal system, of course, spawns from from Greece and its beginnings. Um, And so so what's happening now in the church in uh, in Corinth is whenever anybody has an issue with another person, whenever anybody has been sinned, sinned against by another person, they're just following that routine practice and taking them to court. It's that issue that Paul addresses this morning, and this passage is, is a little bit surprising for a couple of reasons. One, because his reaction to this is so strong. Second, because the theological foundation he lays is, uh, is so... Um, it's just not something we usually think about. Like it, it seems almost like a bridge too far, the foundation he's going to lay. Uh, and then finally... The right and proper way to handle these things is, uh, is just as surprising, okay? Um, 
it's especially, a passage like this is especially valuable to us as Americans uh, in, in a time like this because ultimately we're talking about civil court cases so it comes down to an, an impinging of personal rights. That's what these civil court cases are, are about, right? We had a contract, he didn't hold up his side of the deal, uh, he's not uh, respecting uh, my, my dignity, the things are supposed to and guaranteed to go a certain way and they're not going that way, and so I'm here to set things right. Let me just introduce by just putting a little seed thought in your mind that will fertilize as we go, go along. The Bible is tremendously pro-justice. If you read the Old Testament prophets, one of their primary complaints against Israel is that they neglect to do their duty to take care of the poor, to take care of the foreigner, to, uh, as it says in the book of Job, to rip the teeth out of the unjust, right? Make it so they can no longer harm those they're taking advantage of. Um, The Bible is all about justice, but when it comes to getting justice for yourself, not so much surprisingly different attitude and that distinction must be maintained because saying that you're all about justice when you're really just about personal justice is oftentimes wrong-headed so let's read the passage together we're going to look at chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 and then we'll pray when one of you has a grievance against another does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Let's pray. God, I have a a personal concern for me and the church this morning that a passage that's so practical and yet so specific may seem irrelevant to us. But I know that the root issues of both the, the theological foundation that Paul lays and the heart behind what's going on in the church of, of Corinth, those things are, uh, are incredibly uh, relevant, incredibly important to us. And so I pray that you would help us to see beyond the situation of the church in Corinth and directly into the heart of the Corinthians as human beings where we will find common ground, where we can both rejoice in your goodness and repent of our sin. We pray this in your name. Amen. Notice, if you will with me, how Paul opens this passage. He says again in verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Greek language is uh, particularly helpful when it's written because you can communicate emphasis in the writing of it right have you ever noticed how tone can change what's emphatic in a sentence right Uh, so as I read this sentence I put the emphasis on the word dare 
right? Let me read it again. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? By putting the emphasis there, it brings out the emotion, the tone, the shockingness that Paul sees in this. In the Greek language, one of the primary ways to do this is by front-loading the sentence with the important words. You see, unlike English, where we usually, if we have a sentence with the definite article, start with the, right, the ball, or oftentimes we go subject to object, the boy hit the ball. In Greek, you can structure the sentence with much more freedom. And so it became practice to put emphasis on parts of the sentence by front-loading the sentence with it. The first word out of Paul's mouth is dare here. It's the shock. He cannot believe that they have this type of boldness, that they would be so um, cavalier as to do something like this. He's shocked. He says, how dare you go to law and that before unbelievers with one another? It's important to recognize here that Paul, this entire time, seems to be operating on a different level than the church in Corinth. For them, this is routine. For Paul, it is shocking. And then he says, do you not know? What does that imply? It implies basics, right? He's like, have you already forgotten? Are you unaware that? When, when we use a phrase like, don't you know, the implication is twofold. One, you really should know. And two, this is, this, is, this is so important, right? Paul's entire tone in this is, is just he can't believe. In fact, he does something in this passage that earlier he refused to do. If you were with us for our last series as we went through um, 1, Corinthians 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul emphasized, I'm not saying these things to shame you, but to admonish you as children, Right? He took the time to say, if you're feeling shame right now, that's not my intention. But notice what he says here in verse um, verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. <laughs> He's, he, just, he wants them to feel the weight of this. And here's something we have to recognize about our own behavior. When things become normal and when they become routine, we no longer have any sensitivity to them. That's true of hard things that we get used to and so are no longer hard things. If you've become a parent, you know what this is like because as you handle kids, your, your ability and your tolerance for that goes up. And so you put somebody who's not been around kids in that situation and all of their stress alarms are going off, whereas for you it's completely normal, right? That's just how human beings are built. And you have to recognize this morning that it's no different when it comes to sin. That when it comes to doing things you shouldn't be doing, even things you once knew were wrong, the more you do them and the more you silence your conscience and the more resistant you are, the more calcitrant you become, and it's not really that big of a deal anymore. Paul is using shocking language this morning because A, the Corinthians' behavior is shocking, and B, they're completely deaf to that reality. So he shouts. Right? They can no longer hear the truth. And so he's doing his best to pull the blinders off. He wants them to feel shame because he wants them to recognize how shameful this behavior really is. In fact, there is a direct relationship between this word shame and the word dare in the first sentence. Okay? The boldness is like saying unashamed, right? They're without, uh, shamelessly, there we go, that's the word I'm looking for. They're shamelessly going to court, and he says, no, you should be ashamed. Now, 
I want you to recognize this morning, unless you're already familiar with this passage and with this teaching, um, that at first it might be a little bit difficult to connect the dots on why this is such a big deal. I mean, if someone takes advantage of us and the court systems exist, are we not to utilize them? In fact, if you're familiar with the rest of the New Testament, you'll know that Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors put a really high regard for secular authorities. In fact, most of the times when we're trying to struggle with how the Bible says we're to treat outside authorities like judges and presidents and kings and rulers and emperors, we're on the other side where we're like, are we really supposed to to recognize their authority so greatly? Are we really supposed to submit to them? Isn't it Paul in Romans 13 who says that we are to submit ourselves to government authorities and that they rule that sword because they were appointed by God to do so? In fact, if you read this and you're not paying attention, it almost sounds like Paul has very little, puts very little regard for judges in the judicial system, right? First, he refers to them in verse, um, verse one as the unrighteous. And then later on, he says, those who have no standing in the church, right? So it sounds like he has a really low view. And so there's some parsing we need to do this morning to explain what the differences between these two ideas are. The first Uh, Well, and let me add a little bit more fuel to the fire. Even in Paul's own ministry, do we see him availing himself to the justice system? Of course we do, right? When he's being unjustly beaten because he's a Roman citizen and it's against the law to beat a Roman citizen, doesn't he speak up and say, hey, is this really right? When he goes to prison after being beaten without a fair trial of any sort and is stuck in prison without... Um, without being able to stand before his peers and then when the Philippian justice system finds out that he's a citizen and tries to quietly get him to leave through the back door doesn't he go no you come and get us publicly because you put us in here publicly when he finds that he's standing before um, before a trial on his own life where the Jews are trying to get the Romans to basically take care of the Paul problem Does he not appeal to a higher authority and appeal to Caesar and get carried all the way to Rome in seeking justice? Yes, all of that's true, okay? And so that has to be held in mind. But what's going on here specifically is talking about civil cases and not criminal cases, okay? And it's also not talking about treatment from officials, which is ultimately what Paul's trying to do. He holds the government to their own law, right? In fact, interesting enough, um, some of you are aware that I've been reading through the works of Martin Luther, and just recently I got to a portion of Martin Luther's life where the Catholic Church has finally been able to harness some of the great rulers of Luther's Europe to get rid of, by force, with the sword, start wars against the Protestants, against evangelicals. And so this question comes up, Can we fight against the emperor? Is it okay for us to take sword? And surprisingly, Luther maintains the answer consistently, no. But there's one occasion where he says, well, maybe. And it's because some lawyers are saying, well, actually, the way the laws of Europe are written allow for self-defense against an unjust decision of the emperor. And he actually, the reason he says maybe is he says, I don't think that's an accurate reading of the law, but if it is, then we follow the law. I'm not trying to say that that is the 
biblical view this morning. I'm just, I just want you to recognize how different it is than the way we think about it. Us, who are children of the American Revolution, right? But here, here the idea is a civil case. The idea is not Paul against outsiders. It's not Paul against an, a corrupt uh, system. It, it would be Paul against Peter. It would be uh, one person in the Corinthian church against another. They, last week we mentioned that what was going on um, in Corinth was kind of like Jerry Springer. Now we've switched to another TV show. This is Judge Judy, right? That's what we're talking about this morning. And so you have to recognize that. What's going on here is, in, and second, let me add one more piece that we'll see this morning as we look at the text. Paul isn't even against them trying to resolve these issues, is he? When he gets to the heart of the issue, he'll speak very strongly on where we start from. But he says, if you want this dealt with, deal with it in the church, right? Don't go to the justice system. Don't go to outsiders, okay? So with that being laid, let's take a look. Once again, verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? We've already seen how shocked he is, and he he now gives one of six occasions wherein in the letter of Corinthians he says, do you not know? Now this is really important because the church in Corinth is a mess. It's, it's got all sorts of problems and they start laying them out all the way back in chapter one where he says, you've completely fallen off the rails of how to think about wisdom and foolishness, about height and low, about riches and poverty. He says, you've, 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 you come to think of yourself and your church in standards that don't even apply to Jesus. So here's Jesus who is, who is poor and unjustly treated and shamefully killed, and that's who they stand with, and, and yet the Corinthian church regards in the church those of high status, who are the most gifted, the most applauded, the wisest. Uh, and then he says, and it doesn't fit us who started the church either. Have you forgotten, you know, the beginnings of the church? What about me and Peter and the things that we've suffered? So he starts there, and then he, um, in chapter 5, takes on this sexual immorality that's being either tolerated or even applauded in the church. Here he goes to court cases. Um, he'll move on to all sorts of other issues. The church is a mess. But what I want you to recognize, although this letter is corrective and practical, it is inherently theological. The why is not just, this is bad, this is good. The why is always, this is who God is. This is what God has done in your life. This is what Christ has done for you. This is where, as we'll see this morning, you're headed in the Christian life. There is this sensibility sometimes that says, I just want the nuts and bolts. I just want what's practical. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And Paul never settles for that. One of the reasons we're so comfortable with that actually is because we read the New Testament so differently than the early church would have. Right? Paul's letters, including this one, would have been read in a single set sitting, right? Publicly to the church. And when we go through it month by month, week by week, passage by passage, there's a tendency to forget what we talked about last month, last week, at the beginning of the letter. And if you read closely Paul's letters, you'll find that many of them have a two-part structure where he lays out a theological foundation in the first half and then says, therefore, and starts to apply it in the second half. 
You can see this in Romans 12, verse 1. I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So he says, because of the mercies of God, chapters 1 through 11, live as a living sacrifice, chapters 12 through 16. Okay? He does the same thing in chapter 4 of Ephesians. He says, he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, walk worthy of the calling in which you were called. The calling in which you were called, chapters 1 through 3. Walk worthy, chapters 4 through 6. Okay, and so if we get into the practical and it's just Paul telling us what to do, there's a tendency to be reductionistic and forget that all of those things are the cart behind the horse of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. Okay, so when Paul deals with this issue this morning, he doesn't even point to the law. Although we do know that the Jews themselves did not take one another to foreign powers for justice. They had their own court system and it's very likely that there was one in Corinth because wherever there was a synagogue there was usually one of these courts where the elders of the Jewish society would help de decide cases. Now why would they do that? Because going all the way back to the time of Moses in the book of Exodus that's what would happen. People would bring their grievances to Moses and he would make a decision. In fact it was such an intense and involved job that under his father-in-law's advice, Jethro, Jethro said, look, you gotta, you gotta appoint more people, man. You, you can't spend all your time just deciding cases, so raise up 70 men to help you with this task. And so that was the system all the way in the beginning in the Old Testament. But notice where he goes. If I say to you, don't sue other Christians because, how do you fill in the blank? Listen to how Paul fills it in here in verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Really? That's where Paul goes? In fact, there's a tendency, I think, and an appropriate one to go, what? What's he talking about? Saints will judge the world? In fact, I know no place that's better at helping you to parse the broad semantic range of a word than 1 Corinthians 2, 3, 4, 5. Because he's already said, nobody can judge me, right? Chapter 3. He said, don't judge the world. God judges the outsiders. And a few verses later, he says, don't you know you're going to judge the world? Right? What's going on here? We have to recognize how much um, how much range there is and how we use words. Context determines meaning, okay? Now, it's the same word, krino, throughout all of these passages, but the way Paul uses, uses them tells us what he means. And I'll give you a very simple illustration. When I say the word grill, what am I talking about? What are you thinking of? You think of a barbecue, the front of a car, uh, the action where I interrogate someone else, uh, you getting in my face, right? All of those are options, but when I just have the word grill, you don't know what I'm saying until you have the context, okay? And the danger oftentimes is when we read the Bible like a set of proof texts, just a stack of verses, and we go, uh, then we hit these tensions and we don't know what to do with them. We go, wait a minute, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, and Paul says, you're going to judge, you need to judge. It, context really matters, okay? But once again, notice what Paul says here. Effectively, this is his logic. He says, don't go to the courts because eventually you'll be the courts. Now, if you're not familiar with what Paul is talking about here, it can be especially confusing. And so let me walk you through um, what Paul is talking about. First off, the most important place for this is Daniel chapter 7. 
Okay. Um, the book of da- Daniel is an apocalyptic book, meaning that it looks to the future and it does it in, em- uh, in imagery that is uh, esoteric. In other words, more dragons than horses, uh, more many-headed beasts than than baskets of figs, okay? It's prophetic, but the imagery is intentionally um, imaginative, okay? Book of Revelation would be an apocalyptic work. In fact, apocalypsis is where we get the word revelation, because that's, that's what the book is titled in the Greek. Um, in Daniel chapter 7, Paul has a vision of the Ancient of Days, Uh, and the end of all things, and a judgment is set up, and in, I believe, verse 12, don't worry about turning there, but in verse 12, it says uh, that the Son of Man will be given judgment with all the saints, okay? Jesus says a similar thing in his own ministry. He says to his disciples, the twelve, when I return, when the Son of Man comes, you will sit with me on thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel, If you read closely the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, you'll see similar promises uh, to the churches. Now, here's where that semantic range really matters, and Paul's actually utilizing it here. The relationship between judging and ruling throughout uh, Hebrew understanding is much closer. That's why we have the book of Judges, and you never find a court case in it, right? Have you ever noticed that? We have all of these judges who arise in Israel, and never do we see them presiding over court cases. It's because the term for judge and the term for ruler have a lot of overlap in the Hebrew mind. What the Bible makes very clear is that our partnership, our union with Christ is so complete that his destiny is now our our destiny. And so he is seated at the right hand of the Father, we too will be seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again, and we will come with him. He will rule, and we will rule with him, okay? Now, even if you hold on to that idea, you know, he points to the, to the future, to the destiny, there's a little bit of a so what factor. It's like, that doesn't mean that this particular person I'm thinking of is competent to decide this case even though that may be their destiny, right? I think we can all think of somebody who's on, on the lowest rung of, of our personal view, uh, and we go, well, that's fine. I'll wait. I'll wait until Jesus finishes the process. I'll wait till he's complete. Now he's so incomplete, I don't really want his advice, right? We all come from that place, but you're, you're missing what Paul is actually talking about. In fact, later on, doesn't he say, isn't there anyone wise enough in the church? His implication is not that any old Christian is better than any, any possible judge outside. His, his recognition here is that there's a wrong-headedness in recognizing what's going on in the world. Frankly, he's not just saying the judge or the judicial system is, uh, is, um, is going to fall apart and be replaced. The whole sense of justice, the case itself... He refers to this case later on as the matters of everyday life, and it's a relatively um, diminutive term. He's he's not just saying everyday issues like the practical things that the Bible doesn't talk about. He's saying everyday issues like the lowest common denominator of what needs to be dealt with. He even calls it here the trivial cases. And there's a sense where this is the first thing you have to recognize this morning. Whatever injustice you endure... 
whatever paycheck you uh, had, had stolen for you, wherever the contract breaks down, when you widen out to the full view of what God is doing, it is trivial. Okay? We have to recognize that this morning. What a dependence on litigation says when it's something we're devoted to, when we're after it, when we will hire whatever lawyer and they can do whatever it takes, when we justify evil for the sake of good, all of those things come from a foundation that says this matters so much that if it's not dealt with, everything is wrong. And here's the things that you have to understand from a Christian perspective that Paul is only scraping the surface of. First off, Paul recognizes in the book of Romans chapter 8 that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And when he starts listing the things that can't take it away, it becomes a very interesting list because all of the things that he mentions are things we'd rather avoid. He says, neither death nor life, powers nor principalities, nor things to come nor things that are, nothing will separate us from the love of God. What Paul is saying is, I can endure all of these things and lose nothing. But the reason he can say that is because he puts so much value on what he has right? The love of God is enough. The reality of what God is going to do is enough. The fact that his eternal destiny is secure is enough. God himself is enough. Part of the reason why Paul is shocked that they would do this in public, out in the court system, is because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make this clear, okay? Now, we'll come back to that, but... Um, he says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? The recognition here is, is that your destiny, all of it, the sum total of it, uh, is going to set these things right. And to be clear here, he's not saying, don't worry about the court cases, because eventually that guy who took advantage of you, you'll be sitting, right? You'll be sitting with the gavel and you can set things right, just don't be in such a, such a hurry. It, it's, it's more nuanced than that. The recognition is, is simply and solely that the church's destiny is glorious because Jesus is glorious, okay? Notice what he says in verse 2 again. Do you not know that it's the saints that will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you competent to, uh, incompetent to try trivial cases? Remember here, he's not talking about individual Christians, but the church at large. I just want to point out once again how foreign this is to our thinking. Here's the question I want to ask you. If somebody mistreats you in the church and you lose profits because of it and they have, um, uh, what's the word he uses at the end of the chapter? Defrauded you. I think that's a great and helpful term here. If you've been defrauded by another Christian, is your first thought, I need to go to someone else in the church or is it I need to get a lawyer? Right? Remember what I was saying about sensitivity and becoming callous? It doesn't even occur to us. It wasn't occurring to the church in Corinth. The possibility of outside of the courts um, some sort of mediatorial role where there can be um, a deliberation and come to conclusions without taking it to courts, we rarely even consider that. Now, I also want to recognize that Paul is fully aware that even though the court system is generally good and we would rather have not just authority but order than no authority and chaos, right? And so God has appointed these things and they're good. He also recognizes there's a good deal of corruption in these places. In fact, once again, Greece was just down the road from Corinth and in Athens, um, it was pretty clear that the people who got quote, end quote, justice were the ones in high standing with all the power. 
And it was much harder for those of low standing, the widows, the outsiders, the underrepresented, for them to get justice. In fact, it may even be that that's what's going on in the Corinthian church because he says you're defrauding one another and he doesn't just talk about the guy who started the case. And so this may be a, I am so insulted that they took advantage of me, I'm going to take them for all they're worth, right? This is not justice, this is vengeance. And I think we can all watch enough daytime television or watch the nightly news or whatever it is to recognize how prevalent this is, right? When we use categories like, um, like personal suffering, suddenly the envelope for what's just grows by millions of dollars, right? This is the reality that Paul is addressing. This is what he's dealing with. What he really wants to do is get to the heart, And so he starts the surface, he points to theology, he's dealing with the externals, but as he drills down, he gets closer and closer to what's important. Notice what he says in verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Once again, we're like, what? What is this talking about? Now, some have tried to play this down because that word, angel, uh, it can also and sometimes does refer to preachers. Uh, to messengers. That's the overlap there semantically. And so some go, he's just talking about the fact that preachers will be on trial. Now that's a hard case to make after chapter four, where he says, I only have one judge of me as a preacher, as me as a minister, as me as a pastor, and it's not you. Um, but still we're left going, wait, is this, is this all angels? Are we talking demons? Or are we talking just angels? Is the idea here that our guardian angels may have slipped up and let us down and they'll pay? Right? What is going on here? The closest we can get to piecing it together, um, first off, here's something we need to recognize, and it will come up again in the letter of Corinthians. We can be very clear that Paul knows what he means, and we can be relatively clear that the Corinthian church knows what he means. If he says, do you not know, how does he know that they know? Probably because they, he taught them, right? This will come up again in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, otherwise, why are those who are being baptized for the dead? Why do they do that? And we go, baptized for the dead? We can know that the Corinthian church knows what he's talking about or he wouldn't bring it up, right? But both in the book of Peter, in um, 2 Peter, as well as in the book of Jude, there is reference to fallen angels, what we would call demons, who are basically awaiting trial, that have been put in chains eternally until the judgment. Now, it's clear, it's clear that Jesus is king of all kings, that his name is above everybody, it says in Philippians, not only on earth, but in heaven and under the earth, right? It covers the whole gamut of of where people are, there Jesus is Lord, okay? And so the idea really comes back to what we've already seen. He's just recognizing the fact that, that this is um, surprisingly holistic, that even though according to the Psalms, God has made humanity a little lower than the angels, that is where we start, but it is not our destiny. And so he's just laying it on thickly here. He says, do you not know we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? If in realms that we don't see and understand, we have a participatory role because of Jesus Christ, how much more should we be able to figure these things out within the church in everyday life, in the here and now? 
If we're going to determine the spiritual realities, how much more can we determine the physical realities? Now, here I'm going to start tickling your conscience a little bit. Is it possible that the reason why we want to go to court is not so much because we want justice, uh, it's because A, we want justice at any cost, and B, we want vengeance. And that requires it to be public. And it requires there to be uh, more than what was taken from you. Is it possible that we'd never see, th think of deliberating this in the context because at best, the scales are gonna balance again. At best, things are, are going to be set right but not in our favor? Is it possible that we don't go to the church because we're so invested in a proper outcome that we're unwilling to risk it with somebody who might get it wrong, right? Because let me point out an obvious implication of what Paul is talking about here. If it's dealt with in the church, you don't get to hire a lawyer, right? An expert who will make your case, who knows how to work the system. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about you being your own personal lawyer, if you will, representing yourself, and then leaving the decision, because isn't that implied here too? If this is going to work, ultimately the decision of whoever you go to in the church should be final. He doesn't pitch this as phase one. He doesn't say, don't go to the courts until, right? This isn't a progressive thing. He says this is to be dealt with inside the church. And one of the reasons why this drives us crazy is because like Veruca Salt, we want it now. Isn't that true? Read the Psalms. Watch David, who knows God has a destiny for him. You will be king. Samuel anoints him and yet is constantly for seven years on the run from an insane king named Saul. And read the Psalms. What do we see him do? Do we see him seeking justice for himself and hiring a lawyer? No, we see him crying out to the God who is just. He leaves vengeance in his hands. In fact, twice he gets what clearly looks like a God-given opportunity to get rid of Saul. Twice his own company are saying, God has put your enemy in your hands. And he says, I won't slay the Lord's anointed. Later on, mainly because of David's own sinfulness, he's not perfect, uh, his own son usurps the throne. And instead of David putting his son in his place, he walks away. This may not be an accurate reading of this, because like I said, by this point, David's life is a mess. Our lives, the more sins involved, the more complicated it gets. He's had this sexual sin, and now he kind of doesn't know how to be a dad. And it plays out horribly the rest of his life in a thousand different ways. But eventually, he takes back the throne. And it seems to me that the idea is the same. It's, I... God can take care of this. If he gave me the throne, he can keep me on the throne, right? It's meekness. It's what the Bible calls meekness. But even when justice doesn't come, what we see in the Psalms is a recognition that it will. That God is a just judge and that things will be set right. And all of the injustice in the world that's gotten away with, the story's not over. This, by the way, if you're not a Christian this morning, is why to us eternal judgment is so important. Because we don't live in a just world. And as much as we like to think that we're great at life and great at law and that our systems work, we all know that they don't. 
People really do get away with terrible atrocities. And the Bible says that's not the end of the story. That there really is justice and it really, really will come. And one of the ways we see that playing out in the life of somebody who knows the Lord is that they're willing to wait. So he says in verse 4, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Now, this sentence is actually really ambiguous. Either way, it comes out to the same thing, but the emphasis is a little bit different. He's either asking a question. He's either asking a question and saying, why do you take it to those who aren't regarded highly in the church, referring to the justice system? In fact, it's important to recognize even here, maybe not so much in Corinth, but in the church at large, these judges are the ones who are taking advantage of Christians, right? These judicial systems are not giving justice to Christians. In fact, Paul sits in prison for a year and a half because Felix just wants a bribe. And he thinks, maybe somebody who's a friend of Paul who's rich will come along and pay his way out of prison. So I'll just keep him there like an investment and wait. He's not done anything wrong. Felix doesn't even know how to tell his superiors what the court case is, but he's like, well, I can ride this out a little longer and see if it, you know, um, fills my pockets. But it's also possible that in this sentence he's commanding them to give the court case to the lowest in the church. Here, I'll read it that way. He says in verse 4, If you have such cases, lay them before those who have no standing in the church. Now, here's what's really intriguing. This word here for no standing, Paul's already used it. Earlier, he refers to the church of Corinth, and he says, Considering your calling, brothers, not many wise, not many great were called, but instead God chose the foolish and the things that are not. That's the same word here. But either way, whether he's saying the judges aren't even regarded by us, or he's saying just give it to the least in the church, it works out the same, doesn't it? He's saying, he's saying the least in the church would be better than the greatest out there. It doesn't matter which way he really meant it. It comes out the same way. But, uh, verse um, 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Okay, so my point is here, he's speaking a little bit rhetorically. Even if he's saying, give it to the least in the church, he's trying to make a point, but he's not saying that's how justice should be done. We have to recognize this, because there is a way that that almost seems beautiful. Like, wouldn't the great reversal in Christian life to take the least and the worst and make them the greatest and the most important? And there's a sense where that's absolutely true. Paul says that those who have the least honor in the body should be given the most honor. In other words, uh, we should treat people who are sh uh, sh uh, shamed and rejected by our culture in the church in such a way that it looks like honor, right? But, but he goes on here and he swings it the other way and he says, isn't there anyone wise enough in the church? Now he's speaking of, um, he's speaking of an actual idea here. Find somebody who can do the job within the church. But I also want you to notice how ironic this statement is. What is the Corinthian church's self-reputation? How do they see themselves? As the wise, as the upper echelon, as the greatest. And he basically pokes at them and says, are none of you even smart enough to decide a case, right? 
Isn't there anyone in your church who's wise enough? He says, you're not even living up to your own reputation here by relying on outsiders. Now, now he gets to the real issue. Verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. This is the first time where he really starts to talk about what's wrong, and he gives us two things. One, that we're going to court against one another. Two, that we're doing it before unbelievers, that we're doing it publicly, okay? Now, notice what he says about this in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Now, generally, generally when we hear the word defeat, we think of battles. But the word he chooses here, as you might suspect, is a court term. It means to lose the case. So what does he say here? He says, if you're going to court, you've already lost the case. What is he saying? He's saying, when Christians sue Christians, everybody loses. There is no winners. How can he say that? First. First, the one who's defrauded, the one who started this, the one who's treated another Christian unjustly has already lost, right? Because how are we to treat one another? to love one another, to put one another first. We're givers instead of takers. The idea of taking advantage of another Christian is the reverse of what we're called to in Christianity. Second, though, the one seeking justice has already lost. Why? They've already lost because they've forgotten the other half of the gospel message, which is forgiveness, which is... um, which is sometimes called a path of non-resistance. We'll look look at this in just a second, but to sum it up, Jesus specifically says, if someone sues you for their coat, give them your tunic as well. Right? And so they're losing out on not just obeying Jesus, but the blessed life of the Sermon on the Mount. Right? The good life, they're settling for a lesser life. Not only that, but the church loses out. Why is it that Christian scandal is always in the news? I'm going to take a guess here and say because it's a relief. Because, see, I knew there was nothing to that Christianity stuff. There's a horrifying verse in the Old Testament. Nathan, speaking to David, if I remember correctly, says, because of you, the nations will blaspheme right? His behavior is so public and so visible, the whole world goes, I knew Jehovah wasn't real, right? And here, if, if Christians take the court or take the route of the courts and bring their, if you will, dirty laundry, laundry out into the street to be dealt with, it, it's a loss for the church. And then finally, it's a loss for the world, Okay? Why is Paul so interested in witness? Because he wants the church to maintain a good reputation so they can feel good about themselves? No. Because he knows that the gospel is the world's only hope. Right? And so it's a loss for the world. They may be entertained by the trial. They may be relieved, but they're also put in a terribly precarious position. You see, for Paul, he always has an understanding of the Christian life as one being lived in public. As if we make our decisions, not just what's in my best interest, but what's in their best interest. 
And a lot of times that means that we defer the value of our reputation. That means that we don't take action. Okay? What he's not saying here is, oh man, when there is issues in the church, we should just keep them quiet or else. Okay? In fact, let me remind you here, he's not talking about criminal cases. Listen to me. If criminal activity goes on in this church and you're aware of it, call the police. Every time. Okay? We're supposed to pursue that type of justice. We're supposed to pursue that type of righteousness. And the worst thing the church can do is try and hide that stuff. Okay? Maybe you're even aware of churches that have tried to do so and it left you know, the perpetrator to perpetrate again or it left um, you know, the victims with unresolved frustrations or a thousand other things. But remember, he's talking about Christians suing Christians here, these public civil cases. He says it's already a defeat. And then listen to what he says. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Isn't that surprising? He says it would be better. It would be preferred. It's the good life to just take it, to let them take it, right? To be mistreated, to be taken advantage of, to, to lose, you know? And notice he doesn't put a dollar amount here. He doesn't say it's only five bucks. He could just easily say it's only a million dollars. Guys, this, this line is so difficult, and I cannot be the only one aware of Christian singular or plural or corporate suing other Christians because big bucks are on the line, right? But this principle applies, applies across across the line. And why? Some of it's because we've already seen. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart is. And that also means that you follow your treasure when it leaves, right? Sometimes the greatest way to know what you need, what you want, what's most important to you is when it's gone. Remember the Carly Simon song, Take Paradise and Put Up a Parking Lot? You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Sometimes you don't know what's got you till it's gone. Jesus has this philosophy of the physicality of life that is that it's just money. It's just food. It's just clothing. It's just today. There's an occasion where Jesus is teaching and somebody interrupts them, uh, interrupts Jesus, and he says, be an arbiter for me so that my brother shares the inheritance. It's a cry for justice. And not only does Jesus say, I'm not going to do that, but then he, the first thing out of his mouth, the next thing, the way he takes this interruption and turns it into a teaching opportunity, he says, beware of covetousness. For life does not exist in the things that you possess. That's why Paul here can say, you want to win in this situation? Be defrauded. We like to think of forgiveness as just something sentimental. But true forgiveness always means bearing the cost of someone else's sin. There's an illustration Tim Keller uses that I've always found helpful. Imagine somebody comes into your house and they break your lamp. Forgiveness means either that you live without light or you buy yourself a new lamp. Okay? There's an economic reality to forgiveness. And so what I'm saying here is there is an opportunity when someone takes advantage of you to reflect the gospel and radically forgive. And that doesn't just mean I forgive you, but you're going to have to pay me back over the next six months. It doesn't mean I forgive you, but we still need to go to court because this isn't right. Forgiveness is more radical than that. Okay? 
He says, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be taken advantage of? And second, forgiveness in that sense, forgiveness in that sense does not require repentance of the other party. Okay? Reconciliation always does. It takes two people to restore relationship, and you cannot restore relationship like we saw last week and the week before. When sin is in the midst of the people, it has to be dealt with. Right? It has to be removed. You can't just say, I know you're living with your mother-in-law, but we forgive you. Come back. No, it has to be dealt with. But first, before that's done, forgiveness is a vertical thing, which says two things. One, I'm not going to be the ultimate judge. I'm not going to carry down the final sentence. When Paul's talking about the government being uh, the sword that we appeal to in Romans chapter 13, he says, do not be a vigilante. Don't go after vengeance. God says vengeance is his and he will repay. And so forgiveness then is a refusal to be God, a refusal to be judge, a refusal to be jury, judge, and executioner. Make someone pay for their sins. But the other part of forgiveness is backwards looking. Okay? Forgiveness is not just something we do as Christians. It's something we've received. And opportunities like this show that you either understand the reality of God's forgiveness or you don't. Jesus in another place tells this story. He says there was a man who owed another man millions of dollars. And so he was called into account and he said, I plan on repaying it. I just don't have the money yet. Give me a little bit more time. And it says that the, the guy he owed the money to was moved with compassion and he forgave the debt entirely and just said, it's gone. And the next day that man was walking around and he saw a man who owed him $50 and he grabbed him by the shoulders and he said, pay me what you owe me. And the man said, I don't have it. I'm going to get it. I promise you'll repay me. And he said, no, you're out of time. You will not get out of debtor's prison until you've paid the last cent. And it says that the first man, the one who was owed millions of dollars, heard about it, and he called his servant into account, and he said, I forgave you so much, and you're unwilling? You're unwilling to forgive him for so little? What is, what is Jesus trying to point out? He's trying to point out that when we recognize what God was required to do to set things right in our life, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God and that our debt was not just too much for us to repay, but impossible to repay, right? The idea of, of Christianity is not just that you're a couple dollars short and Jesus fills in the margins. The idea is that you have nothing and owe everything and Jesus comes and pays everything so that it will cost you nothing. If that is what Jesus has done for us, how, where can you set the limits for forgiveness? Where can you set the line and say, no, this must be repaid. No, this is what's owed to me. Listen, guys, there is this tendency because we're Americans to put too much emphasis on our rights. We're followers of Jesus. Jesus didn't come for his rights. He laid, down his, he laid aside his rights and he took his wrongs. In fact, more importantly, he took our wrongs. And he did it willingly and fully, okay? There is one right, one right listed for you in the New Testament. 
In the book of Romans, Paul says that you have been given the right to become the children of God. Lay aside the other ones. Listen, fight for justice. For those who have no voice, be a voice. For those who are being treated unjustly, seek justice. For oppressive systems, seek to overturn them. But for your own rights, if you read the New Testament closely enough, you'll see that that's not a battle we need to wage. And the biggest reason, the three that we've seen, is, is one, because we're convinced that justice will come, and so we don't have to freak out and make it happen or it won't happen at all. Jesus will judge, and we will be with him. Two, because what we have that matters can't be taken. And every time we're defrauded, every time we're taken advantage of, every time we turn the other cheek, every time we go the extra mile, every time we live the way Jesus lived, it shows that our treasure is elsewhere and untouchable. It's not threatened by moth or thief. And three, because we are defrauders, because we are the wrongers, because we are the unrighteous. And instead of God demanding justice, he pursued justice by taking it upon his own shoulders. He laid aside the rights of his office, Jesus did as God, did not consider equality as God as something to be held onto is what it means in Philippians. But he laid it aside and took on no reputation, poverty, the form of a servant, and no lived an obedient life, even to the point of death, death on the cross. And it's not just, not just that Jesus did that for us, but he called us to follow in those footsteps. Do you know how that passage begins that talks about this great descending staircase of what Jesus has done for us? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is a witness issue because it reflects who God is. And so we don't take one another to court and we don't sue one another because that, that shadows, that blurs the image of God. It confuses again. It shows greatly human nature. But it doesn't demonstrate grace. It doesn't demonstrate the power of God. It doesn't demonstrate the sufficiency of God in our lives in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't demonstrate how much we owe to God because of how greatly he's forgiven us. Let's pray. Father, we live so much of life in a reactionary way that takes input and responds directly to that input. And Paul in this passage is developing for us such a good filter, an in-between that we press through that reminds us of where we came from what God has done for us, where God is taking for us, and what ultimately is secure and untouchable. And I pray, Lord, that you just give us the wherewithal to think biblically, to filter our lives, both good and bad, through the gospel and who you are. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust uh, that you have people even in this church who can resolve issues. And we thank you, Lord, that even when that doesn't seem to go our way, we can entrust 
our justice to you, knowing that you are just. I pray, Father, that we would not not be the type to take the dirty laundry of the church out into the public for a decision. That we wouldn't speak of the sins against us in the church instead of speaking to those who sinned against us in the church as Jesus taught us to in Matthew 18. I pray, Lord, that we we wouldn't dare like that servant dare to make a big deal out of 50 when we've been forgiven millions. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we respond this morning, we can partake of communion. Um, We'll sing together the offering boxes here too for those of you who are a part of the church and want to respond in that way. Um, But let's just take some time and, um, uh, you know, before we even go into this,